hello, hello, and welcome all to the first episode of Untayat Am, a podcast from Barcelona Metropolitan. I'm Harry Stott. Untayat Am is Catalan for a coffee with, and joining me today for a cup is a journalist and author whose work has covered every one from Mandela to Messi and everything from food to the front line of conflict. I'm talking about the Spanish-British writer John Carlin. As well as spending a long period of his life living in Catalonia, John has reported in vast swathes of the globe, South Africa, Colombia, Central America, the US and the UK, to name a few. Indeed, if you live here in Barcelona, you will no doubt see his regular columns in La Vanguardia. And if you live elsewhere, you will more than likely have read or seen some of his longer works, the most notable probably being his book, Playing the Enemy, Nelson Mandela and the Game That Made a Nation. That book uses the 1995 Rugby World Cup in South Africa as a lens through which to look at Nelson Mandela and the transition away from apartheid in South Africa. It was also adapted into the wildly successful film Invictus, starring Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. I've just finished recording our conversation. It's mid-October, just as the protests against the jailed Catalan leaders are in full swing. John was then, as you might expect, pretty busy, so we found what was a bit of a noisy cafe near the offices of La Vanguardia, where I'm standing outside now. So apologies for some of the background noise in the recording. But I think we had a really very interesting chat. It moved through his thoughts on the trial and the protests. We then inevitably talked about Brexit and then the problems with referendums and separatism as a concept in the 21st century. We also chatted about Mandela and how sorely missed his charisma is these days before going on to an extended discussion about football, which I very much enjoyed. And we talked about John's new TV show on Amazon called This Is Football. So, without further ado then, here's Untayat Am, John Carlin. When I was uh, planning this conversation. I think I originally wanted to sort of lead with some, some broader and uh, perhaps lighter questions about your early work around the world in sort of South Africa and um, Latin America. However, given that we're recording this with the backdrop of protests engulfing, engulfing Barcelona's both airport and on the streets, after the culmination of the Supreme Court trial, which has seen nine Catalan separatist leaders given prison sentences of up to 13 years, I think it would be uh, silly to, to to not lead with that. So what have you made of the trial then, John? I mean, I've seen you describe it earlier this year as barbaric. Um, yeah, where to begin, Harry? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, let us say that the, when the sentences were announced this, this week, um, on Monday, my instant reaction was that they were, the sentences were scandalously disproportionate. That's what I find most most striking. Um, on on that same day, Monday, I actually had the brilliant idea of going to Barcelona Airport to pick up a friend coming in from London, which meant I spent about two hours stuck in in immovable um, traffic. Um, and when I, you know, I, I had a, a kind of paradoxical um, response to this. On the one hand, I was irritated as all hell because not, not only was I picking up a friend there who I couldn't pick up, I had a very important meeting at 4 o'clock, which I wasn't going to make. But on the other hand, the sort of more rational part of my brain 
understood why they were there and, um, and actually sympathized and, and saw these young people come along with a sort of spirit of, you know, the Marseillaise, kind of French revolutionary youth striding and, and with their chests puffed out. And I thought, well, you know what, you're right, because this is just absolutely um, outrageous. And, I mean, the, the broader point I'd make is that this is just the latest and maybe most extreme manifestation of a trend since 2012, when all this independence feeling really started to spark up, is namely that the chief allies of Catalan independence, or the chief propagators of it, are not in Catalonia, they're in Madrid. They're just continually winding people up, pissing people off, and um, sort of goading them. And I got fired from El País, which is the biggest newspaper here, because basically for writing what I've just told you. And, but for saying how, how, how dumb they were, how politically inept they were, how they were achieving precisely the opposite of what they were trying to, what they were purportedly achieving. But I've since understood that I, I was wrong in the sense that in, I thought in my simplicity that the priority of the government in Madrid and indeed of the forces of the state in Madrid was to solve the Catalan problem. It's not the priority. The priority of the politics of Madrid is to win votes in Teruel, Sevilla, and Burgos. And it's only secondary. You know, if we happen to sort it out, that's fine. But actually, increasingly, I get the sense that it seems to suit the powers that be in Madrid for this to go simmering on. And, it, and now it's more than simmering, it's kind of burning up. Um, and maybe, 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 now that things are reaching a bit of a crisis point, possibly people in Madrid might start getting a bit more real and getting a bit more serious about trying to address this. Yeah, I was curious about um, your your break with, with El País. I mean, does criticism of Madrid or even criticism of the king constitute something which is such a, a great offence to something like a, a newspaper? It seems a curious situation. Well, <laughs> it's very curious, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it just so happened that the, the, the powers that be at the time in El País um, took great offence at me for example, criticizing the king, you know, which is, you know, after the whole, you know, when everything exploded two years ago with the so-called referendum and all the rest of it, the king came out and made a speech, and I remember watching it live in London and thinking, well, this is a chance for the king to rise above all these squabbles and, and, and you know, put himself forward as a, as a unifier of the nation, and all he did was just kind of perpetuate the same anti Catalan independence rhetoric of, of the government of the day, and instead of, as I put in the article in the second paragraph, I think, of the article in the Times that I wrote, it was the offending thing that seems was the reason for my dismissal. I just put that instead of um, building bridges, he was digging ditches. It seemed to me to be a pretty sort of obvious statement of fact, actually. But anyway, that, um, that appears to be the reason why the place fired me, although they never, ever, ever gave me an official or unofficial explanation. Mm. I mean, one thing about your writing, and indeed, from that, your views on Catalan independence reveal... Well, I well I'm, and I'm against Catalan independence. Yeah, well, yes, Let me hasten to add, this, this, is, this is the thing. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm just by nature, because you described a little bit my, my biography when we began, mm -hmm. um, the fact that I've, I'm half Spanish and half British, mm -hmm. I've lived in Argentina, I've lived in South Africa, I've lived in Washington, I've lived in Mexico, I've lived elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for me to, to form a very strong attachment to a particular flag, Precisely, you know. Yeah. 
Um, and in addition to that, I love Spain, and, and I just find it a bit sad that people in Catalonia don't want Madrid, Seville, Bilbao to be a part of their shared heritage, you know. But having said that, I mean, and I've been very, very clear that everything I've written and said that I'm, not, I'm against independence, but having said that, given developments in the last few days, and in particular this sentence, I can certainly understand why people have independentist sentiments. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, you just um, highlighted precisely my point that I was going to make, which is that that sort of non-partisan view, unfortunately, seems to be a pretty rare stance in a lot of modern political discourse. Um, and so I guess your, has your criticism then opened you up to basically the ire of both sides? Yes, yeah, no, well, um, before everything sort of, you know, rose to a higher level of conflict two years ago with what I call the so-called referendum and other things, um, I was actually a target of a lot of criticism by the pro-Catalan independence people because I, you know, I was just so unambiguously against independence. So they, you know, you know how did I see this? I heard it on the radio, uh, articles that were written by people, and, you know, and these commentary things they put at the bottom of articles on the web, I mean, they were just... That was the general, um, general direction stuff was coming from. But then after this happened, and I, you know, um, the way that I sort of came out and, on the one hand, denounced this, what I perceived to be the ineptitude, now I see as a cynicism of the powers that be in Madrid. <coughs> and then since then, I've been absolutely unambiguous in my feelings that it's an outrage that these people have been in prison without trial. I mean, now they've now they've, the, the sentence has been passed and. I'm not quite sure whether I can still call them political prisoners, but when they were there for two years without being charged, I thought it was fair game to call them political prisoners, which of course pissed people off like nobody's business on the other side. And since then, the independence, pro-independence crowd are rather more sympathetic to me because uh, or they, they, they fire less barbs at me because at least they see that I'm standing up for what I consider to be sort of pretty basic human rights here that go beyond these matters of independence or not. Sure, yeah. Another thing I've seen you mention in, in your writing is an idea of a, a Spanish inferiority complex in relation to the Catalan question. I wonder, I wonder what you mean by that. No, not in relation to the, to the Catalan question, in relation to, to people like you and I, Harry, okay. towards the Anglo-Saxon or Northern European cultures. Mm -hmm. It's there, it's quite buried, but, um, and, and, but it's absolutely palpable. And I say this as someone who knows Spain very well. You know, I mean, I've got massive Spanish family, hyper-reproductive, ultra-Catholic Spanish family in Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I've got, I've got one cousin my age has got ten children, another cousin my age has got nine. Um, so there's a lot of people I can call on. And, and also, yeah, I mean, I, I've travelled a lot around Spain, and there's definitely something, and, and I find it deeply irritating, because actually I far prefer Spanish culture to English culture. <laughs> I mean, I just think that... You know, sure, there's been you know more inventions there, and sure, absolutely ahead of the game in terms of democracy and all the rest of it. But I think that people in Spain, by and large, have got a, a wiser approach on how to live life between birth and death than people do in the Anglo-Saxon nations. Mm -hmm. um, and but there is definitely this 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 sort of lurking feeling of inferiority, this insecurity. I mean, you see it in 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 various different ways. Partly the way that people react to me. I mean, when I make some criticism, for example, on, on the Catalan question of the, the king or the judicial system in Spain or the politicians in Madrid, 
you're invariably going to have someone coming up saying, who's this English guy, even though I'm not actually English, strictly speaking, but who's this English guy coming along? And, you know, and, and, and what you also see, I'm sure you've come across it, Harry, is um, if the, the, the London Times or the Financial Times or the New York Times writes an editorial or even an article on a situation in Spain giving some sort of opinion, it'll be invariably just splashed across the front page of the newspapers. They're terribly sensitive right. to what's said about them elsewhere. Now, do you imagine that if El País or La Vanguardia writes an editorial, you know, denouncing Boris Johnson, anyone's going to give a toss, you know, everyone's, anyone's going to even think for one second of putting it, you know, in Spain they think we're a bunch of complete nutters, you know. I mean, they just don't care. And, 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 what, is, and what I'm describing is a symptom of not just an insecurity vis-à-vis, say, Northern Europeans or Anglo-Saxons, but insecurity born of the fact that this, this has only been a democracy for 30 years. Yeah. And they've had a civil war quite recently. And I think so much of what you're seeing right now, this ineptitude or cynicism and lack of a sort of real down-to-the-bones democratic culture is explicable in terms of that, in terms of the youthfulness or the adolescent nature. Because on the other hand, like adolescents, they sometimes sort of spurt along yeah. and, and they're ahead of the curve. I mean, like there's a lot of things in which Spain is, Spanish democracy is incredibly admirable. For example, I think we're the first country in Europe to legalize gay marriage, you right. know. So you've got so many things. So there's this, there's this kind of adolescent ambiguity, you know, mm-hmm. between on the one hand retaining certain sort of infantile um, impulses, but at the same time being, you know, impressively ahead of the game in other regards. And do you think another thing which adds to that is the fact that because of the transition to democracy, Spain has never really been forced to, to deal with to deal with its past and to really deal with Franco. I mean, it was only yeah. recently that uh, Franco's body that's been well, exhumed. Very, very, from, very recently yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the Spanish, the, the, the political transition from Franco to democracy was universally admired and actually people displayed a lot of qualities that would be very good to display right now with the Catalan question, a tendency to, to compromise, to accommodate, to whatever, and possibly a necessary... Um, brushing under the carpet at that time of the sins of the past. So, you know, so had you then you know, conducted, as they did, for example, in South Africa, sort of a truth and reconciliation commission that lasted a couple of years in which you really sort of went forensically through the crimes of recent decades, maybe had Spain done that then, it would have been dangerous. It would have put at risk what was then a fragile new democracy. So you can understand perhaps why why that's died, they said, let's just part that one, you know. But, uh, but, but the thing is that now, you know, about 30-odd years have passed. Is it, how many years is it, 30 years? My maths fails me sometimes. Yeah, exactly, yeah, getting on, yeah, exactly, whatever. Yes, exactly, 40, I beg your pardon, exactly. And, and, and they still haven't really confronted the past, and there's still hundreds, if not thousands, of graves out there where there are bodies of victims of the war and people who were shot and firing, fire squatted and what have you that have not been dug up, you know, and have not, and there hasn't really been a, a reckoning. And, um, and I think that probably explains why there's still this sort of, there's a kind of Franco virus still in the system. It's not the dominant feature of the system by any means, by any means, I mean, you know, but, but there's still a Franco virus. And I have to say that I think the Franco virus is most visible in what I think is, to switch my metaphors, the heart of darkness of the Spanish system, which is the judicial system, which, you know, things that they've done in the last couple of years on many terrains, not just political, you know, like these 
this famous case of La Manada, this girl who was, who was raped by these was it five barbarians. It was just a kind of ghastly thing. And these guys were sort of, you know, allowed out and they were given, you know, I can't remember what the upshot was, but there they were, you know, running around. Um, not, they're, not, they're not put in what they call here preventive prison. And meanwhile, they're putting not just politicians, but the former president of the Barcelona Football Club, Sandro Rosell, in preventive prison before trial for a couple of years. I mean, that's really, you know, where no one's been killed, where no one's been shot, where no one's been robbed, when there's no visible victim. I mean, you know, give me a victim and then we can talk about putting people, you know, in preventive prison, as they call it here. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the other glaring referendum, which is um, defining European politics at the moment, is, of course, Brexit. And what do you think the sort of the farcical nature of what Brexit has, has become and as well as the sort of the, rea- the reaction to Catalan independence can tell us about referendums and sort of separatism well, in the 21st century. Okay, referendums first. Um, I, I was um, against the referendum on the EU and in favour, I remain in favour of a referendum on the Catalan independence question. This has um, made those who disparage me sort of crow cheerfully and say, look at him, he's an inconsistent bastard right. and all a hypocrite, whatever. <laughs> well, the distinction I'd make is this. I think it's a very, very important one. Let's look at the Scottish referendum, which I also thought was a good idea, by the way. The Scottish referendum responded to an overwhelming popular clamour for a referendum. Here in Catalonia, there is an overwhelming popular clamour for a referendum among both pro and anti-independence people. I mean, like 75% of people say they want a referendum. When the referendum was called in, in Britain, I think it was announced, was it 2013? I decided beforehand. The, the subject of the European Union, in the minds of you know the collective British public, ranked in position about number 29. Yeah. Right? People just weren't thinking about it. It was just a fact of life, like you know, the air and the sky and, and the cars that pass down the road. Um, and so, and it obeyed entirely, you know, a desire of the Conservative Party to resolve its internal problems. And I think that's a huge difference, you know. So that if there were, if there is, for example, a No Deal Brexit and whatever, and the Scots call for another independence referendum, you know, I'm right behind them. Because then you can be damn sure that the overwhelming majority of Scots are going to want another referendum. Yeah. I mean, just no, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty damn sure about that. And here, here, all this mess that we're in Catalonia right now, it's been, it's been going now for about seven years since that huge one million people demonstration in Barcelona in 2012. Yeah. Um, all of the, you know, people in prison, Things are going to get, you know, probably increasingly ugly here. Spain's reputation internationally is being damaged horribly. All this could have been avoided if you'd held a referendum. Yeah. And what's more, had you held a referendum here, in response, like I repeat, to a popular clamour, in, say, 2012 or 2013, I bet you every last penny I have that the, the, the no to independence vote would have won, and comfortably, more comfortably than it did in Scotland. Right. And, you'd, and it would have been problem over, at least, you know, for another generation. I actually, many years ago, covered an independence referendum in, in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, in Quebec. And, you know, and there was a big, just like here, a big sentiment in favour of it, but the vote to stay in won, and Quebec continues to be a thriving place, and 
probably in 20 years' time, someone will say, hang on, how about trying this one again, you know? But so all this, all this stuff, this crisis that we're in now, is all because they didn't hold a referendum, which they would have won. Mm -hmm. But I suppose it's the, it's the mechanics then of if a secessionist, a separatist referendum does win, everything's showing that the, well, especially with Brexit, the mechanics of it, the logistics of it, if they do win, especially by a small margin, makes the whole notion of separatism in the 21st century when everything is so connected, yeah. so difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's something to be said for, in the case of a referendum, when you're deciding a massive national question mm -hmm. for raising the bar <coughs> above 50% plus one. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what it was, but when, when, when the, the referendum was held on joining the European Union, was it 73 or something? 73, something like that, yeah, yeah. There was, I think it was 60% or even two-thirds was required, um, which was obtained. And maybe something like that should be applied. I mean, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, as you can imagine, I'm, you know, massively against Brexit, again, because the nature of the, the, you know, the circumstances of my life. And I do think that it's actually much more about the circumstances of one's life whether you're in favor or against this, it's just, you know, people don't really make sort of scientific, rational choices. You know, it's who you are and who your friends have been and who your family and what your experience has been. Um, you know, I'm massively in favor of a second referendum. However, if, if it's 52-48 again, say, in favor of staying in, you know, it's not going to be game over. No. Now, looking through your, um, your major works, uh, they seem to Works. be. Sounds very great. <laughs> well, they they seem to me to be sort of punctuated by both um, studies of of countries and studies of people. Um, I suppose the the most prestigious of all being Nelson Mandela. Um, and so you met him when you were reporting on the end of apartheid in um, uh, in South Africa. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I um, I arrived in South Africa from Nicaragua in January 1989. Um, a year before, a year and one month before Mandela was released, which was good, a good reference point for the rest of my six years in total that I spent there, um, because I had one year of living with and taking a cold, hard look at cold, hard apartheid. It was the full-on stuff, you know, with the, the most sort of shockingly stark um, system of racial discrimination you could imagine. Having said that, there are other countries I've been in where there's actually racial discrimination de facto, that's probably worse. I mean, at least the, the whites of South Africa had the honesty to sort of put it in the statute books. You know, there's a, there's a certain merit in that in a perverse kind of way, if you know what I mean. But I mean, I, I, so it, it, was, it was very useful for me to see what, what it all consisted of. And then I was just incredibly fortunate in, in the timing of my, my time as a correspondent for the um, Independent then, because then Mandela was released and we had four years of amazing um, work to do as a journalist. Mm -hmm. we, we, had, we had this extraordinary situation, this kind of schizoid situation, where on the one hand, South Africa was experiencing the worst violence, political violence, since the Boer War. Right. And at the same time, they were conducting these exemplary negotiations that have been you know, um, used by people later on in Northern Ireland and Colombia as a sort of template for how to set about, you know, um, reaching a compromise through dialogue. And, and of course, yes, and having the immense luxury and privilege and good fortune of getting to know Mandela about mm -hmm. as well as you could possibly hope to know Mandela 
um, in your position as a humble journalist? Mm-hmm. I think in a, there's a passage of yours that I read, uh, I think it was for The Observer, where you say, I mean, you end it by saying that Desmond Tutu described Mandela's best quality as his uh, magnanimity. Good. And well, well, well spotted, yeah. Harry. <laughs> but, and, and you also focus, I mean, in the same article on Mandela's charm and his charisma. And I think it's, it's sort of telling that, you know, back at a similar time, you had people like Bill Clinton, you had Blair, who that charisma and that charm was so much about their appeal. And now, we, I mean, the backlash against all that new Labour and um, the Clintons has been that we now have some of probably the most obnoxious <laughs> leaders imaginable. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly agree more. Yeah, um, but why do you think that idea of charm and charisma that Mandela is such a symbol of has, has completely left frontline politics? Well, look, I, I tend to think, and I'm not you know, a historian, I mean, I like history, I've read a lot of books on history, that, that when the real crisis happens, that the person emerges. You know, um, and so, and even a person who maybe before the crisis emerged didn't seem like a big deal suddenly becomes transformed into a great charismatic leader and titan. And that might be the case with Winston Churchill, who had a sort of pretty checkered career until the moment came. You know, and he and he rose to the to the occasion. Um, in the case of Mandela, and I think Mandela was always bloody great, actually, and also charismatic, like from a tender age. I mean, I imagine he was a charismatic six-year-old, although. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, but so I think that, that's, that's one thing. I think that, um, I mean, if you look around the world and start poking into the kind of corners of places where um, the news doesn't really cover so much, we'll probably find there's, there's all kinds of sort of charismatic and wonderful leaders out there lurking in maybe a little, a little village in Kenya or something. I mean, and actually, having said that, um, you know, people often ask me, in fact, they just asked me on the Catalan radio right now about, you know, famous people that I've interviewed. And I've met and interviewed lots of famous people. But actually, the ones that stay with me most are, are sort of, you know, in, in public terms, faceless people right. who've been fantastically heroic and honest and charismatic um, in their own much more obscure sphere. And... You know, those are the sort of people that I remember more. I mean, not Mandela. Mandela stands head and shoulders above pretty much everybody. But I mean, you know, I've interviewed people like, talked to people like Clinton, Bill Gates, um, you know, famous writers and famous actors, Morgan Freeman, Clint Eastwood. I've done all these things. Messi, Zidane, you know, I've been around. But there are particular individuals that you would never have heard of that have really sort of left a mark on me. I'm sort of, I'm wandering away from the question, Harry. I'm sorry. But I think that... um, I think that you know the, the the great charismatic leaders will return, and and they don't necessarily have to be just charismatic. I'll settle just for some sort of honest and yeah. and you know pragmatic and get the bloody job done. I mean, like for example, I think Angela Merkel has been there at a very very difficult tough time in in in, in Europe. And although I'm far from being an authority on German politics, I have a sense that she is you know the one really visible grown up proper leader that's that's out there. You know, irrespective of what one might think of her economic policies and what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose if it's not going to be charisma, at least some sort of sensible <laughs> sensible head on someone's well, shoulders. Well, like being responsible. You know, I mean, I look yeah. at Boris Johnson, it just seems to me to be the absolute peak of irresponsibility. You know, the truly fantastic thing about Brexit, Harry, which is just quite unlike maybe anything I've ever seen in a long career, you know, covering politics all over the world, 
is that the Prime Minister, who is leading the Brexit charge, does not believe in Brexit, doesn't give a toss. I mean, that's amazing. You know, here, you know, say the Catalan leaders, Puigdemont, the guy who's in exile in Belgium. I mean, I don't have any great esteem for him or anything. But, you know, I'm sure he genuinely believes in, you know, we want out, we want to leave. You know, he's a lever, but he's genuine about it. You know, you may disagree or not. But in the case of Boris Johnson, I mean, you know, if you were to tell him, look, Boris, mate, if you, if you, if you just have a second referendum now and if um, Remain wins, we guarantee you 10 years as prime minister. I mean, he'll bite your hand off, you know. I mean, it'll, I mean you know, he doesn't give a monkey's. And that's fantastic. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, in a way, one almost, you know, it's almost vomit at the thought when I say this, but I mean, one almost has to respect Rees Mogg more because Rees Mogg probably does actually believe in all this garbage. Well, I think actually with, I mean, today in the, in the news in, in the UK, it's looking like Boris might, Boris Johnson, sorry, might um, actually get a deal. It's Good, I'm, 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 I'm glad to hear that for just one reason that I made a bet on this recently that I said that he'd, he'd get a sort of, um, he'd basically sell the May deal with a couple of ribbons and mm -hmm. a couple of sort of, you know, cherries on top. Mm -hmm. And um, the difference being that May is clearly a far more honourable human being than, than Boris Johnson, but Boris Johnson is a salesman. And he'll basically, I think he's basically going to sell the May package. That would yeah. be my bet. Although but I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it, but... But in terms of his, his ideology, I mean, the fact that now he's pushing for a deal right at the end, I think, shows his kind of fear of if no deal were to happen, he would be blamed for it, and that's the last thing. Yeah, there's no to. ideology there, Harry, mate. There's no ideology in Boris Johnson. It's just... Well, know, of, it's just of out for himself, I mean, that he doesn't I mean. want yeah, to be yeah, exactly. strong with the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, man no, no, who exactly. put through no yeah, deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, it's like Donald Trump. Whatever decision these guys will take will be absolutely as a function of their own vanity yeah. and, and a need to be on on stage and you know and to remain on stage and mm -hmm. that's what it's all about and it's yeah. kind of pretty desperate that these two mighty nations historically I mean Britain's not so mighty as people like to think the Brexiters like to think but it's pretty amazing these two countries that are sort of you know examples around the world of, of democratic sanity by and large are just so betraying the whole sort of democratic ideal and it means that despots all over the world in places where the situation is more fluid um, you know, I've got much more license to be dictators. Mm -hmm. You know, it gives them license. Mm -hmm. Now, moving back to Mandela briefly, uh, you also talk about his his knack for symbolism, of which um, your novel, Playing the Enemy, and then the film Invictus. Not a showing... novel. Novel would be fiction. It's oh, so apologies. Yeah, your your, your book, book. Playing the Enemy. Let's just call it a book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, um, yeah, I mean, a, a key part of that is the. Rugby World Cup final of 1995, which is just this visceral moment of um, togetherness of a country coming together, and so using sport then as a lens through which to you through which to view politics is something that you've done a lot through your career. And what do you think it is about sport which makes it so powerful and symbolic? Do you think it's the the idea of it as a shared experience? Or? Well. Um I think, I think let's, just, let's just stick to Mandela for our answer here. First of all, he gave a speech in about 1997 or so, maybe later, in which he said, rather grandiosely, but I think not exaggerating, he says, sport has the power to change the world. Sport has um, the, the, the means that politicians do not have to really make people think in, in different ways. That's one thing that he said. And one thing he said to me 
that he said publicly, he said to me when I interviewed him for, for this book you just referred to, um, he said, if you really want to persuade people, don't appeal in the first place to their minds, appeal to their hearts. And that is where the sort of the symbolism, the sort of the political theater, Mandela was a master of political theater, of putting on a show of a sort of almost, you know, a sort of, yeah, a show he's on stage performing, playing out peace and dialogue and reaching out the hand to shake, you know, the hand of the enemy. And he did this, you know, the most spectacular case of it was in the Rugby World Cup final in 1995, but I could, I could be here all day long telling you stories when he did exactly the same thing in a, in a less, you know, um, exalted stage. And, um, and I think it's just, it's just terribly important. It's something that, you know, the really successful politicians, uh, especially today in the age of you know, TV and social media, if you have that, that knack, that sensibility, uh, you will get far. Of course, that ability for political theatre um, can also be used by the bad guys. You know, and who was the other? You know, there were two great political theatrical figures in the 20th century: Hitler and Mandela. You could probably add Churchill to that. But you know, the two of them knew how to how to manipulate the masses by appealing to their hearts, where where where, where things really stick, where their message really sticks. And sticking with sport, then, you have a new TV series for Amazon coming out? Called yeah, it's already come out quite it's, recently. It's already come out. Uh, yeah, this is football, yes. This is football, yeah, it's great. It's bloody great. Yeah, of course, oh, I'm looking forward need, to watching Needless it. to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so does, does it focus, then, on a similar idea of the, uh, the healing power of football? Um, no, it's not, it's not so kind of... Um, it's not as clearly politically um, didactic as, say, the, you know, Invictus was or my book, Playing the Enemy, on which it was based... Um, but the, the underlying idea of the whole series is that um, football is the world's biggest subject of conversation. I mean, with the exception, you know, family matters or whatever, you know, the children or something. Um, it's, the great, it's the great subject on which the, the, the planet converses with most passion and most knowledge. You know, and it's very democratic in the sense that if you were to find some Cambridge professor of classics who's a mega football fan, you'd drop him into a village in Chad of shepherds, there'll be a complete sort of equality of erudition and analysis, you know, which is a, which is a wonderful thing. And so um, that, that was the underlying idea. It's the great conversation of the world. And so the next question is, why is it the, the great conversation of the world? And the answer that basically I came up with this with this idea and then we obviously developed it with a whole huge team of people was that it sort of ticks all the boxes in terms of the eternal and elemental human passions and themes such as love pride ambition faith whatever they're all contained you know in that football conversation all these you know, almost if you like Shakespearean. What makes Shakespeare eternal is that these eternal human themes are there, and they're all there contained in football too. So therefore, what we did is that we we, we chose as a title of each episode one of these enduring eternal themes. You know, so one, like I say, one is called love, another is called belief, another is called uh, I don't know whatever redemption, and uh, we found stories to um, illustrate that around the world, and we travelled everywhere. We, we we went, I think, to pretty much all continents except Australasia and, um, and we spent two years working on it and it was very, very difficult and very great fun at the same time, very satisfying.
It's interesting. I think it comes at a when interesting time for for football where this idea of grassroots football and clubs being at the heart of a community is kind of being sucked out of the game. I mean, you have that the dichotomy between sort of mega clubs, sort of often, you know, backed by petro states these days, yeah. um, but devoid of any morality. And then on the other side, you have small clubs, someone like Berry in the north of England, who now cease to exist. Um, is this is football... Does it try to address, or is it a response to that this new no, we, footballing we, we, divide? No, 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 no. We we never tried at any point to be polemical or didactic. It's really just a celebration of right. of the game, and we just did everything from. You know, we have one one episode on on Messi, just celebrating you know the world's greatest player, and then we also have um, we look at a young, the, the youngest professional referee in South Africa who overcame <laughs> throat cancer. And he's a fabulous character. And we find a 15-year-old girl in India, a bit of a sort of bended like Beckham type, who wants to, um, you know, play professionally for the Indian national team. It's her dream. And she's this unbelievably sweet, terrific girl in this, you know, poor place. So we went to China and found a former soldier who's his football nut. There's no grass in the city he lives in. So he, he and his mates built a sort of artificial pitch on the top of a tall building, and they play there. And it's, you know, about that sort of thing, but also how in Rwanda... Football was incredibly valuable, instrumental in, in in maintaining the peace after the appalling genocide. And but we do so, you know, in a way that's sort of cinematic, without being. We don't want to be didactic. We just want to try and reach people's hearts. And um, you know, we had a number of sort of quite famous people there, like Pep Guardiola appears and lots of other you know big names. Anyway, but it was it was great fun. But we did, we didn't address these kind of you know. You just said football was devoid of morality in this big. That's a bit of a strong statement. No, no, I know clubs. I know what you mean exactly. But but you know what's what's weird, Harry? What's weird and what's I don't know whether it's good or bad, but it is. Is that there you are? You're a Man City fan or a Chelsea fan, and you know have a, you know a Russian mafia oligarch takes over your club, or you know some bloke from Qatar or some. And you'd think that people would say, well, you know, God, this is all, as you would say, devoid of morality. I'm not going to support this team. They couldn't give a toss. So long as their team is winning and doing well, um, they don't care. And it's, it's a funny sort of, I don't know, a, a kind of, you know, it's so overwhelmingly important is the need for your team to do well and play well that you'll, you'll turn away and not even bother to look at this. And I, I have the same view on, on, on FIFA. I mean, I think FIFA has been absolutely... There are, there are no adjectives to describe how execrable and vile this organisation has been, and the very simple fact of them choosing Qatar. I mean, sorry, you don't need journal, in, in, investigative journalism to tell you that Qatar getting the World Cup in 2022 is a massively, fundamentally corrupt thing. Um, but, you know, and we've all known, really, for quite a long time about FIFA, myself included as a journalist. I remember I've got a friend who was investigating FIFA in 86, big time, doing a documentary on how corrupt Joao Havilland was. And, but even I, as a journalist, who sometimes opines with great solemnity and moral rigor on great matters of life and death, you know what? I take the view of most fans. I don't want to know. It's a bit like, a, like an eight-year-old who starts getting a bit of a suspicion that Santa Claus doesn't exist and it's really mum and dad but you know what I want to keep on believing this for another couple of years so we're going to just look away and carry on with this and I think you know football is in many ways especially if you as a fan is a kind of regression to infancy where you allow yourself to behave in a kind of, and say things in a kind of irrational irresponsible way that you wouldn't in your you know everyday life 
And I think that there's, there's something of that. People don't really care. I mean, it's a scandal that the World Cup was held in Russia in 2018. Yeah. Come the time, did people, you know, turn off the TV sets in protest? Or no, I don't think so. You know, and they probably won't in Qatar, although Qatar, I think it's so outrageous. That I think I'd yeah. be tempted not to turn on the telly, quite honestly. Well, precisely. Do you not think there is a point where that magic breaks, where that magic football Well, it could break, be. I, 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 I think that... I don't think it's happening in club football. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a PSG fan or a Man City fan or a Chelsea fan or, you know, Man United, these Americans, or, right, right, whatever. I mean, I don't know, there might, there might be some moral purists like you, Harry, who sort of say, sod this, but the vast majority, mate, you know, if the Americans... I'm no moral purist. Exactly. So if, if, the, if these kind of disagreeable, unpleasant Americans happen to sort of provide you with a, you know, if they gave you a team as good as Man City have... I don't think you'd be sort of quibbling too much, quite honestly, well, Harry. Point, let, certainly not, let, no. Let's be honest, mate. <laughs> and so, um, I don't know. I think, but I, but I do think that that FIFA has been so outrageous that I do think that there is a risk of the World Cup being undermined and and devalued. And I think that process has begun. And also, I mean, if you know your football, if you know your football, as um, as I like to think I do, there's a much better, higher quality of football at club level top club level than in the World Cup national teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So to end then, a lot of your reporting has been from some particularly sort of politically febrile places, um, I mean, South Africa in, in the 90s. Um, you uh, you went to, or you had a sort of non-trip to Venezuela recently. <laughs> I, I read about Last that week. recent. Yeah, yeah I wasn't allowed in. I was. I, I spent four hours in the airport and I was deported. No, but, well, officially it was because I didn't have a work visa. It's complete bollocks. I've been told categorically by people, no, it wasn't the reason. No, I think I'm an undesirable in Venezuela. I mean, it's a first for me. You know, you've got to do everything once. And, you know, when I was in South Africa, I was threatened with expulsion a couple of times, but they didn't go through it. But the Venezuelans, you know, went for it, and I've been deported, and so it goes. Yeah. Well, what do you think it is that attracts you to these, those politically febrile places? Is it the, the oh. stories or kind of a masochism? <laughs> no, no, certainly not masochism. No. It's kind of an excitement. And yeah. it's, but it's also, Harry, it's about making a living, mate. Yep. You know, I mean, I, um, you know, I left university. I spent a couple of years kind of traveling around North America. Then I thought, hello, I'm now 24. Better start thinking about getting a grown-up job. You know, like my other mates were all working in companies and stuff. I thought maybe I should join the grown-up world. And I went, I sort of, I went the sort of semi-grown-up world of journalism. <laughs> and um, and it occurred to me, it was, it, we're now talking the early 80s, and Central America was buzzing. You know, there were wars all over the place, atrocities of all kinds. So I just sort of, you know, looked around the globe. I spoke Spanish. So I thought, you know, I went there as a complete and utter sort of, you know, naked, starving freelancer. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, so there was an element of the excitement of it, but mostly it was just pure pragmatism. It was mm -hmm. just getting, you know, getting, feeding myself. And I went there, and, and sure enough, it was a good place for me to be. And I, you know, did a lot of work out of there, and I built up my career over the six years I was operating in Mexico, Central America, went in from being, you know, a 50-pound a month freelancer to having a, you know, a full-time staff job with people who gave me a car and a house and what have you, you know? So that was it. And then South Africa, I, was, I just followed orders. My boss said, the foreigners said, go to South Africa. I said, sure, why South Africa? I knew nothing about South Africa, but, you know, I just do what I'm told. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's about making a living, basically. And then yeah. after that, if you can do a little bit to make the world a better place, cool, mm -hmm. you know, very welcome. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk about making a living, which um, for uh, for many journalists, and I think for journalism as a as a uh, an industry is becoming very difficult. So, so much more difficult. So how, difficult. how do you think, how has it changed the industry in well, your Well, obviously, it's all time. to do with the internet and the fact that 
Look, you've got a fruit shop, you're selling your strawberries and oranges and apples, and then the next day the internet comes along, or so there's a technological change, and you're giving it away for free. Mm-hmm. This is what's happened in, you know, in newspapers anyway, newspapers. And so, you know, it gets complicated. There's been a, a huge strategic failure, I think, by all the newspaper owners to come together when the internet began and say, hey, let's just, you know, rather than being in competition all the time, let's just agree on this, that we're all going to charge on the internet. I think that would have been the thing to do at the beginning. It didn't. And, um, and so it's a lot more complicated. But I have no doubt that this will become, once again, there'll be a way of making a, a fairly honest living, reasonably honest living as a journalist, because people are always going to want to hear stories. Yeah. People have always, you know, since the caves of the time of the mammoths, you know, there'd be a little skinny guy, a little skinny journalist type who wouldn't be throwing the spears, but at the night over the campfire, he'd tell, mm-hmm. tell the lads and the lasses the story of what happened, you know, and, and I think there's always going to be a need for that kind of person, and there will be a way to make that, you know, a financially feasible thing to do, which gives the journalists and storytellers an honest living, I hope, I think, I believe. Yeah, well, yeah, let's hope so. Anyway, I think uh, that'll do. Okay. Thanks so much, John. Absolute pleasure, Harry. Thank you. That was Untayat and John Carlin. I do hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Emprofundidat will return, this time looking at the recent protests that have engulfed Barcelona and the trial that preceded them. Do like and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever you normally do so and look out for more of our writing and reporting on the Barcelona Metropolitan website. But until then, have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you next Thursday. The music is No Frills Cumbia by Kevin MacLeod and licensed by Creative Commons.